director of the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion, one of the Episcopal churches that puts theology on tap together. We get together about once a month, usually here at Russell's Pub, usually the first Tuesday of the month, uh, to talk about different topics. And I really was sort of trying to figure out what we were going to do for April. And I looked at my friend Hannah last week and I said, Hannah, I've had this idea. Uh, you and I are both Harry Potter nerds. Hannah on a level that I can only aspire to. Um, and I've got friends that are talking a lot about how does Harry Potter figure into a sacred worldview, into a Christian worldview, into like how does Harry Potter square with all of that? And we're both big Potter nerds, so what if we talk about Harry Potter and faith? And Hannah was like, I am there. So, um, so I thought we'd talk about this. Uh, neither of us has any kind of PhD in Harry Potter, but wouldn't that be great? Um, but uh, Hannah is a professor, so that works. But I also don't have a PhD in anything. Yeah, and I have a cool cape, uh, which is actually part of my priest outfit. It was given to me by the first church I worked at because there was a little uh, 200-year-old church that didn't have like a big area, like a big parish hall or something. And so almost everybody came in and out just right through the front door of the church. You walked like right into the church and right out of the church. So it wasn't anywhere to gather. So in the winter in Washington, D.C., when the priests had to stand outside to say hello to everybody after church, it was real nice to have a big, long cape. Um, and the funny thing is, over the time that I was at St. John's, I was ordained in 2011. At the time, over the time I was at St. John's wearing this in the winter, um, the discussion about what this looks like changed. Um, at first, when I wore it, it was a bunch of fancy Washington women, like in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, who would look at me and be like, oh, that's fabulous. Where can I buy one of those, right? And then there would be like, oh, that's like a vampire thing. And then more and more millennials were at church, and suddenly they were like, that's like Harry Potter. Yeah. And every time I wear this now, somebody's like, oh, that's like Harry Potter. You look like Harry. You look like Snape. You look like... <laughs> and I found that fascinating. So I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about some Harry Potter and some faith stuff. Uh, and what we're going to do, Hannah and I are going to trade off talking about some themes in Harry Potter, and then we're going to release you to talk at your tables about some questions, and then we'll have a big old Harry Potter nerd fest. Um, and we'll talk about the intersections of Harry Potter and faith. But, but to start it off, I find Harry Potter a fascinating thing to talk about from a religious perspective, because there was definitely, in addition to... Let me keep this off, so I'm just getting really <laughs> In addition to uh, like that change that I talked about, even, even over the course of just a few years, how much Harry Potter just entered the popular consciousness, in addition to that, Harry Potter, you know, written by a British author, like a lot of other major fiction series, sort of magical fiction series, that, that in some ways were culture-defining. Um, I'm thinking about, uh, particularly for some of our parents and grandparents' generations, like the um, C.S. Lewis and the J.R.R. Tolkien series, Narnia and The Hobbit. And the, Hannah and I were talking about this yesterday, but there's an interesting switch that seems to have happened on Harry Potter. Um, 
when the Inklings, which is what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and a few other authors had this group at Oxford, they would meet at a pub called the Eagle and Child, or as it's known in Oxford, the Bird and Baby. And they would trade story ideas, and they would talk about their books. And, and for those folks, a lot of times they were explicitly writing Christian themes directly into their books. Now, they would sometimes claim that's not the case. You know, C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, Aslan is not Jesus. But it's pretty obvious that that that's what's going on. And and generally, culturally, the way, because C.S. Lewis was this writer who wrote a lot about Christianity, generally the way that that series was talked about, you know, church groups had conversations about. When I was a little kid, we had a whole kid's journey through Narnia as our Lenten program, and we talked about the themes of Christianity and Narnia and how they went together. And that wasn't just isolated to the weird little place in Colorado where I grew up. That was all over the English-speaking Christian world. Something shifted by the time um, J.K. Rowling started on Harry Potter. When I lived in Honduras with the Episcopal Church, the director of the school that I worked at didn't want us to read or watch Harry Potter because that was brujeria. That was witchcraft. Right? And the sort of Christian world looked at Harry Potter with suspicion. Rowling said a lot of things like C.S. Lewis did in terms of she didn't talk about ways in which faith was explicitly written in the book. Uh, Rowling is a sort of cultural Anglican Christian living in England. Um, She says she doesn't go to church that often, but she does. Um, But she grew up in the Church of England churches. But, But she has a similar reticence to talking about faith that's similar to C.S. Lewis. So I find it interesting the way that Harry Potter and church... I also, I worked at a summer camp um, when I was in college, and this was a really progressive summer camp. But I was I was the program director one summer, and so I got to pick like all of the games and all of the theme weeks, and I was told you can pick whatever theme weeks you want, just don't pick Harry Potter because we won't hear the end of it from some of the evangelical parents, and we just don't want to deal with it. Right? So there's an interesting there's an interesting shift that seems to have happened. On the other hand, um, part of that shift in the theological world, they talk about mapping in a post-Christendom period, um, where no longer is it assumed that Christianity is the like operating system, the faith operating system of the Western world. And in that place, Harry Potter has played an interesting role. Has anybody heard about the um, Harry Potter Alliance? Is anybody a member of the Harry Potter Alliance? Sort of. (laughs) What's the Harry Potter Alliance? So, the Harry Potter Alliance is a nonprofit organization that tackles issues of social justice through a lens of Harry Potter. Yeah. So there's a community (laughs) organizing body. There's a community organizing body, officially incorporated. Uh, You can get t-shirts that functions like a real-life Dumbledore's army. Um, After, in the the Trump election, right? After the Trump election, if you went to the Women's March, if if you've gone to protests, especially after that election, um, the frame with which people are interpreting the world is there's all this Harry Potter. Um, Elaine Albron, who's a, a member of Holy Communion and part of our um, co- group on the uh, Women's March, 
um, at Pride last year um, was carrying a sign that said, Harry Potter taught us it's not okay to make people live in the closet. Right? So there's a way in which these stories have captured the imagination in, in a way that, dare I say, is almost like a sacred story. It's how do we interpret what's going on in the world. The number of memes I saw comparing Betsy DeVos um, to uh, what happens in the fourth book with Dolores Umbridge. Last, fifth book, fifth book, I'm sorry. So uh, the fifth book with Dolores Umbridge last week was huge. So there's this there's this level to which Harry Potter has risen. Um, that's as much as I'm going to say at the moment about that. What we're going to do next, Hannah and I are each going to talk about some themes that arise in Harry Potter that we think map well into the sort of Christian theological world. So I'm going to let Hannah go because I've been talking for a while. Um. A brief word about who I am other than just, um, there's a small part of my brain that since about 1998 has been dedicated to thinking about Harry Potter, and I didn't really put it there intentionally, it's just sort of the thing that happened, and um, that's all I'm going to say about that, but you can ask me more about it later. Um, I was also, uh, in case you can't already tell, kind of a really precocious fourth grader. Um, when I was that age, and so I was a nine-year-old who would take my friends' parents, adult evangelicals, to task on how stupid it was for them to not read Harry Potter because I was a Christian too, and I had to read um, The Wizard of Oz was part of the standard um, standard book of spells, I guess, for uh, <laughs> for um, Illinois grade schoolers to read, and I would argue till I was blue in the face that the witchcraft in that book was way scarier than the witchcraft in Harry Potter, but nobody was trying to burn L. Frank Baum's book. So I've been at this for a minute, um, and I will do my best to stay concise and brief. Um, my students will tell you that I frequently fail, but we'll try real hard. So the first theme that jumps out to me is the theme that really drew me into the text when I was a child, and I kind of grew in the same age as Harry and his friends as the books were released. Uh, by the time the final movie was released, I realized that I had been following this story for like way more than most of my life, and I went home and rewrote Goodnight Moon to be about Harry Potter characters so I could like, go to sleep. That's an entirely different thing that happened. I told you she's a special level of nerd. <laughs> Very. Um, it's, it also happens when your mom is a children's literature aficionado. But, um, community versus isolation as a theme within the books. The reason why I and so many of the rest of us probably fell into the arms of this great big universe is because there was this crew of misfits at the core of it, just like a lot of our other big stories. Um, and there was a crew of misfits who, I wasn't planning to get choked up, there was a crew of misfits who adopted a girl who was a lot like me, who was like too mouthy and too ridiculous to be taken on. <laughs> Uh, but she found a place, and so when Hermione found her place, then I found mine too. And then as the books grew, they dealt with a lot of things that lots of children's literature does. It deals with grief and loss. Like all great heroes and heroines, we had dead parents to work with from the jump. Uh, we took a play right out of Disney for that one. But um, so much of 
what Harry wrestles with and so much of what all the characters wrestle with as the books grow and become darker is how to handle the grief, first of loss, then the grief of finding out the world is not as perfect as you hoped and that the adults that you looked up to have done great harm to people you love and maybe even you sometimes, and that kind of grief. And then certainly the grief that comes from, you know, the really intense loss of we grow into the wizarding wars later on in the, in the text. And what we see there are both really great examples of grieving in isolation, you know, uh, in most of the book following Goblet of Fire, which of course I'm blanking on all Order of the Phoenix. Um, Harry is insufferable. It was an incredibly difficult book for me to read when I was a kid reading the books because I hated Harry so much. Um, and now coming back to it as an adult, we see someone now that for someone who is trying to do the work of grief alone. And we see that the only way out of that for Harry multiple times and for other characters multiple times is through the work of sharing burden. And we see that all the way through the very culmination of the series when, when Harry is going to sacrifice himself, Ron and Hermione will not let him go by himself. We will at least walk with him. Um, similar to Lucy and Susan Pevensey actually walking with Aslan to the stone table. Really similar. Um, so that's my first, is the isolation versus community, particularly around how we handle grief, um, but probably also around how we handle identity as well. Just a thought. So Your turn. Yeah, my turn. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on, which is, I think, one of the overarching themes of all of Harry Potter, and, and the one that sort of, it plays out differently as the books develop, as the maturity develops. I mean, it's really kind of amazing how much Rowling allows these, and they can just get longer and longer too, right? But, but how much she allows the characters to develop, and even the, the voice of narration sort of shifts. But there is this theme in Harry Potter that I think maps so incredibly well to the theological tradition of Christianity. Um, so my question to you is, what is the most powerful magic in Harry Potter? Love. love. Yeah, love. Good right? job, everybody. Good job. Well done. <laughs> but though love, so, so self-sacrificing love is this theme that's across the book, right? Um, it's... Dumbledore and Harry's relationship. Um, it's Sirius and Harry's relationship. Above all, it's Harry and his mom, Lily, right? The very mark that Harry carries on his forehead um, is the mark of his mother's self-sacrificing love for him. And throughout all the books, the characters around Harry doubt whether such a thing could really be the magic that, that makes it work. They doubt whether love can really be the thing. Because so much of the magic in Harry Potter is like something you can control. You say the right words, you make the, right, the exact right flicking gesture, and you can control the magic. But what his mother does for him is this magic that is not an incantation, is not something that can be controlled, and, and defeats the one who is trying to control all the magic, who's trying to control the way that death works. 
it maps so well on the story that's about to be told in Christianity uh, in a week and a half as we begin the long walk of Holy Week. Um, this sense of a, a world-altering, a life-altering love that is stronger than death, that is the most powerful magic, and yet the, on all appearances, it looks like it shouldn't win. I mean, I can't find... I mean, like, that's, that's like the theme of Christianity, right? <laughs> that's the theme of the Gospels. Um, this, this Messiah that, that should be leading an army and conquering the Roman Empire and kicking them out and sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and all the disciples are ready to argue about who gets to be on the right hand and the left hand and who's the treasurer and who's the secretary of education. And, and that's not the way it turns out at all. Right? And, and this whole idea of self-sacrifice for a world-changing love that is the most powerful magic. I don't know you get a more Christian theme than that. Sorry, J.K. Rowling, but that's, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Your turn. So um, now I'm evolving into the part of my life where I get to re-encounter the text as my kiddo gets old enough to approach these books, and I still don't really know how we're going to have an entree into that. He's only four, so I have time. Uh, uh, yeah. But now I'm considering those themes and what they're going to bring up and how we navigate them. And one of the things that um, is brought up in um, some of the work of, there's a podcast out there, if you don't know about it, called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I don't know a ton about it because when I go into rabbit holes, I go deep in case you haven't figured it out. And I've not had the margin in my life to do that rabbit hole yet. Um, but a theme that I've heard them touch on uh, is like what is actually evil in the Harry Potter universe because it's not magic it's not using your will to do stuff the way it is in other places um, and so we have to kind of look really closely at the text because it's not as straightforward as it seems um, so as I was thinking this through and I'm trying to go for like how am I going to explain this to my kid what was it like being a kid reading these books I always flash back to the minute that I knew I was real deep in this universe because I was a small child, and the first act of true evil that we really encounter in the books is when um, an unknown entity at the time is feeding on unicorns in the Forbidden Forest. And as their punishment, Harry and Draco are sent into the Forbidden Forest to find the monster that is killing unicorns with an ostensibly terrible supervisor. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of questionable discipline. But anyway, um, and we see through Harry's eyes, and I remember being just so terrified as a child, this like slinking hooded figure coming over the mist and you know feeding on the unicorn. And as it looked up and the silver blood was dripping down its face, Harry had felt this flash of searing heat from his scar. And when I was nine years old, I snapped that book shut and threw it across the room because it was too much. I was deep in it. And so that first act of evil we have in the text, uh, they say why, Hagrid tells us why it's so bad is that to, to kill a creature so innocent is the only thing that's necessary to sustain a life that you should no longer have. So there's actually this question of sustainability 
and innocence present and what makes something evil in this Harry Potter universe. Another thing that I think maps on to, um, maps on to Christianity. Then one of the other big examples we have are the unforgivable curses, um, the Christianus curse, um, Avada Kedavra, obviously, and then the Imperius curse, which for those of you who don't remember your spell books, um, impose great torture um, on their target, could kill their target, or the gentlest one entirely subjugates their target's will and leaves their target unable to consent to anything that's happening to them or that they are doing. And these are called unforgivable acts within the Harry Potter universe. And so now we have an idea about where there are limits of will, uh, where there are limits to the injury that we can put on others. Dooley is totally cool. The kids will do it in class. <laughs> but there's a limit to how, how hard you can injure somebody and in what way. And there is also the idea that you cannot cast these things without doing damage to your own humanity and your own well from which you draw your strength. And that's why they're unforgivable, is because they are a door that is once opened, you can't close, is the information given in the text. This is important to me because as I was trying to suss out, I, I had a much more evangelical background, even though I argued with the adults, I dabbled all over. Um, but as I was trying to come to grips with what my Methodist church thought, bless us, is still trying to figure out about what's sin and what's not sin and who's allowed and who's not allowed, um, I came back around to this idea of like, well, what on earth is actually sin then? And it was important for me to suss out sin is that which breaks us apart from each other and from God and from ourselves. And that, that's just my shorthand for understanding um, maps on well, but also just doesn't map on nearly as well as the black and white that some churches are still very adept at teaching, and that some people in the Harry Potter universe were still very adept at teaching, that there's actually a lot more into what makes an act evil than it just being a bad idea, because there are plenty of bad ideas that are exceptionally sanctioned in the Harry Potter universe. So... We're going to let you all talk for a little bit, and then we'll come back as a big group and talk as a big group. Um, you've got a set of questions on your table. I'll read them out to you. If you encountered Harry Potter as a child, what theme, story, or detail pulled you in? If you encountered Harry as an adult, same question. If you had the experience of growing up with the Potter stories, what changed as you grew? And then there's a caveat. If Harry Potter wasn't your jam, if it wasn't your set of stories, um, was there a story that occupied a similar place for you? Second question. Uh, many of the characters in the Harry Potter universe are fundamentally flawed. Uh, Harry could be described as self-centered. Ron has an inferiority complex. Hermione is an overachiever. Voldemort is afraid of death. Molly Weasley is a helicopter parent. Not to pick on anybody. <laughs> Which of these flaws are easy for you to embrace? Which of them are difficult or create an obstacle? And then finally, and, and we talked about a few, but please don't be limited by the themes we picked. Uh, we talked about some resonances between themes in the Potter stories and themes from scripture and Christian tradition. What themes do you most resonate with? And what themes bring meaning to your sense of how the world works? Uh, whether you can map them in the Christian tradition or elsewhere, if they're in Harry Potter and they fit in how your sense of the world works, talk about them. Um, we're going to give you about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll come back as a big group. Talk about yourselves.
How many people here have been sorted into a house? Yeah. Um, right? Like, there's something about it, and, and they're like personality tests that people do in the business world now, where they like tell their colleagues, like, I'm a Hufflepuff, and so that means, right? But, but the, that is seen in the books, like, diversity is a source of strength. It maps in a lot of Christian theology these days when we look at all of the language about, like, people of every tribe and language and people of nation will be gathered around the throne. Um, when you look even in the Hebrew Bible and you look at the way in which, I, I did a sermon on this a couple weeks ago, and you look at the way in which God's grace and God's plan spills out beyond Abraham and Isaac to Abraham's son Ishmael and Hagar, and how that is, like, there's no accounting for that. It doesn't make sense from a Jewish worldview that is the classical understanding. But there it is in scripture, and somehow God's blessing is bigger than you would expect it to be, and you have to figure out how the family is wider and more diverse and, and gifted in other ways. And, and it's something that's coming about in 20th and 21st century theology that's seeing this embrace of diversity. It's a, a critical piece of what it means to be uh, in the Judeo-Christian world, and it's something that's just intrinsic in Harry Potter. Um, I want to take a slight on ramp and then I'm going to get out of the way so we can have more conversation. But one of my very favorite things about that flip that you are talking about that's present in the Harry Potter universe and is also so damning about the Harry Potter universe is uh, initially when we go to the ministry, there is a fountain um, called the, it's like the Fountain of Magical Brethren. And so it's a witch, a wizard, and then like a goblin, a house elf, and a centaur, I think. And the latter three are all like looking up adoringly at the witch and the wizard. And the idea is like, and we all live in harmony as long as we're best. Um, and then when the ministry is overtaken, it's replaced with a black marble statue of a wizard on top of the rest, being cru crushing all the other magical beings. And the inscription is, magic is mind. But the trick is that the messages held within each of them are not really all that different. Just one is shinier and more approachable than the other. And that the systemic injustices that are present um, in this universe really map onto what we have done even in Christendom. Uh, I go to St. Myrid, which is an arch abbey in St. Myrid, Indiana. It's about two and a half hours away from here when I need writing retreats. It's lovely. But in the um, lobby, going into their school of theology, where they have trained priests for a couple hundred years now, uh, they have the American version of the Magical Brethren statue, which is all of the St. Minard monks coming and civilizing the native peoples of Indiana. <laughs> and it's still there in the year of our Lord 2019. And they make sure to point it out as a point of like pride on the tour. Uh, and these are all helpful windows, I think, at looking at ourselves and looking at our institutions. What other moments in the books, themes, did you talk about? What characters did you or did you not identify with? Tell me about yourselves. What are your characters? <laughs> <laughs> or what are definitely not your characters? Yes, also that. Did anybody talk about them? Just quietly. That table fits. Yeah. We talked about Snape, just because of the most flawed and debated character probably in the whole series. Right? Most flawed and debated, and one of the most important characters in the whole series, and I still don't know what I think of him a couple reads through. 
Snape. Severus Snape. But nobody wanted to be there Nobody wants to be Snape. Does anybody want to be Snape? I got a little bit of an Alan Rickman thing, I will say. Like, um, there's, there's something about, I mean, he's really broody, but. I want to say that nobody wants to be Snape. Right. But uh, Snape is something that you become if, yes. uh, if you are if you are ground down, if you're mistreated. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you also happen to be of a nerdy disposition. Mm. Yeah, but we were talking about denial, the American way. Uh, denial in the American way. But but I think that's beyond just Snape, right? Um, what's the name of the house elf uh, that's not Dobby, that's in Creature. The, creature. I mean, creature, similar, right? Like, what happens if you are fed a constant diet of hate and of abuse? Creature. Right? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a, I think that's a great example of where it's not inherently true, though. You don't automatically yeah. become either snake yeah. or creature. Because we have I don't think that you can, can really expect that Dobby's life at the Mad Malfoy Manor is much better, better than creatures. Than yeah. creatures' life in the noble and the ancient House of Black. Yeah. <laughs> but they become very different characters through how they process and deal with that. Yeah. And Harry's a great example of that too. I mean, he went through ten years yeah. of awfulness. Yeah. And more when he was during the summer holidays. So, so here's another piece about Harry, and it, it maps a little bit to what Hannah is talking about. So, um, I have a friend, she's a fiscal priest in Washington, D.C., her name is Patricia Lyons. She's written a whole book on Harry Potter and faith formation, and it's it's not just for people that do, like, Christian formation stuff, like our, our, our uh, staff member Heidi at the church. It's, like, who it's marketed to, but the book is actually really brilliant on a lot of these things. She points out a couple things. Um, one of the things that she gets at, which I find really fascinating, do you remember how the Dursleys are first described in the first book? Anybody know? Desperately normal. Perfectly normal. Perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Right? And, and her point on this is, like, perfectly normal, thank you very much ought to and does arise suspicions. And J.K. Rowling, in some ways, has had such an impact on the culture that a Dursley point of view on the world makes millennials go, <laughs> right? Like, and and that, that, is, that, that is something that has like been intentionally cultivated through story. But this, like, you know, little boxes on a hillside, um, uh, suburban existence that they aspire winching. to, yeah, <laughs> is is not something that should be aspired to, and that they're trying to crush the magic, literally, um, is something that should not be aspired to. Um, one of the ways that the the sort of postmodern world gets described, um, and one of the ways that like what is the role of faith in the world today gets asked is. Um, for a question of what they talk about as re-enchantment. Like, part of what, um, like, academics in religion and in sociology say is happened to our whole culture is that through science and through the Enlightenment and through um, a, a lot of the academic questioning of faith and things, we've managed to, like, squeeze all of the magic out of our world. 
And part of why you have everything from Harry Potter to the, God forbid, Twilight series um, is <laughs> that people are hungry for magic. They're hungry for enchantment. They're hungry for something bigger than what the Dursleys have going on. The other thing that she points out, which I found absolutely fascinating, because I didn't know before. Does anybody know what Rowling was doing professionally when she started writing Harry Potter? Waitress is the on the dole. She actually had a job when she started putting the framework of the story together. Anybody know? Did she work for the UN? She worked for Amnesty International. J.K. Rowling, as she started putting the very beginning ideas together of Harry Potter, was doing interviews of people who had been held in prison, in refugee camps, in torture. She was working with Amnesty International on international incidents of refugees, torture, sex trafficking, crime against women. Trisha writes that it is no mistake that the Harry Potter world is both magical and broken, and that the Cruciatus curse is among the unforgivable curses, because she was interviewing people as part of her professional life who had been through what the worst human beings can do to one another is. And she didn't create a world that was totally escapist from that, she created a world in which that was still going on and people found a way through it. I think there's a piece of that that, that maps really well with and why these stories have become so formative is because there is this sense, there's a, there's a hymn uh, that uh, Connor's got, our former organist and Already Jay, is like, we sing this hymn a lot. Right, but the the um, the main verse goes: "Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour." Right, um, cure our um, nation's warring madness. Right, but that there is this sense in which the Harry Potter books intentionally map a broken, angry, tortured, ugly world, both internally for the characters and externally for the characters. And at the same time, it's still Hogwarts. <laughs> and it's still magical. And it's still, you know, all of the Christmas moments. There's Christmas in almost every single one. Of, and it's always like there's this moment of magic that happens. It's kind of awesome. All right, what questions do you want to ask? Or what else do you want to talk about that wasn't on your questions? Either of us or of the group? Or, yeah. I, I just kind of had, had an issue about the whole of the big thing. Yeah, it's, when the Death Eaters do it, it's like all bad and all bad. But then Harry does it, uses the Curious Curse like multiple times, and then uses the Cruciatus Curse twice. So why? So it just kind of seems kind of. Why is it that Harry can use these curses yeah, like and the Death Eaters like can't? If he does it, then um, shouldn't he be like losing his humanity in the process? Because he because regardless of why he did it, he still he still used those things. Mm -hmm. Seems kind of like an odd. Yeah, I think it's one of the rough things that um, the books end where they do and then pick up in the epilogue where they do and then pick up in Cursed Child where they do if you read that. Um, because we don't see the recovery from the Wizarding War. I kind of wish that story had been written. 
That's the story I most need as an adult. There's some good stuff on the fan fiction. I'm sure there's good <laughs> There is. There's, some good, there's good recovery fiction fan fiction um, out there. <laughs> but I would say that as we watch Harry wrestle, um, and when he comes to the place to, to do all of those things, um, he has lost part of himself. And his friends, during that piece of the book, I would argue, we see them like constantly trying to bring him back from the edge that he is teetering off of. Uh, the way that the prophecy is kind of portrayed is like, neither can live while the other survive about Harry and Voldemort. But there's also a really interesting tension of like, Harry could very easily become this thing due to all that he's been subjected to. It's written over and over and over again that Harry and Voldemort have very similar stories. They're both orphans, they're both mistreated. Uh, they both found Hogwarts and it was their safe haven. All of that. They were both mentees of Dumbledore, just all, the, all of it. Um, and so I don't know that we get to actually see up close the harm that is wrought on Harry from those things. I don't think we do, but I still feel like there's textual evidence for it being consistent in the universe that it would. Yeah. Midrash, Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> if you, I'm gonna do one more thing if you don't have one that you wanna raise. So, another thing I find really instructive about the Harry Potter books, um, and about the cultural moment we're having, especially in the you know current administration um, and, the, and the way that you know like and, and the reading of the Dolores Umbridges and the, you know figuring out what book we're in, you know, is there's there's a willingness to be textual about Harry Potter and read the news with it. Um, it it's. Uh, often seen as a, uh, they can't figure out when, but it sounds like something he would say. But there's this legend that Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, said that the job of a Christian is to read, um, is it, to start every morning with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? And and so from Barth's perspective, um, to take the stories of Scripture and to read the story of today together. And we're willing to do that with Harry Potter um, in some really amazing ways. And my question is, can we take that as instructive for how we look at scripture? That is all sorts of problems that raises, right? Um, but, but one of the things that I find fascinating about the Harry Potter books is, you know, they live in the youth fiction section of the, you know, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and hopefully your local bookstore left banks down the way keep them in business, right? But, but they live in the youth fiction section unquestionably. But if I ask you, are they true? What's your answer? Right? Like, it's not the easiest thing to answer. It, yes, there wasn't somebody named Harry Potter who got on a platform nine and three quarters and, although you can go visit nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station. Some of you probably have. But, but, but while that wasn't there, there's something that maps as true. There is truth in those books. Um, my friend Patricia likes to say, there is real magic there, right? What if we saw that as an invitation to how we approach sacred story, too? 
what if we were less anxious about historicity and uh, the age of the um, planet and, you know, like whether dinosaurs were put there as a trick from God to confuse us and make us think that evolution might be real. Um, what if instead of playing those games with scripture, we looked at the ways in which, which, which frankly, scripture was not written for, right? Most of scripture, before it was written down, especially the Hebrew Bible, was stories that were told um, around campfires, uh, around lanterns and homes, helping people tell the story about the magic of the universe and how it works. They were told from person to person before they were written down. And they were meant to try to explain how our universe works. So what if we... Uh, let ourselves read scripture, at least some of the stories of scripture, at least some of the themes, some of the ways that we read Harry Potter, and we look for the kind of truth that we find in Harry Potter in scripture, rather than engaging these ridiculous fights about, you know, like what's true and not in scripture. Does that bring up any questions? Or do you have other questions about Harry Potter and faith and things like that? Anything else we want to talk about? You're all so quiet. I'm glad you talked to each other so much. I'm hoping you just burn yourselves out. Oh, yeah. I was just saying with that, um, as somebody who left religion for years, yeah. just recently coming back, um, the Harry Potter universe is very accepting of wherever you are. Yeah. If you watched the movies, didn't watch the movies. If you read the books, didn't read the books. Hate Cursed Child, love Cursed Child. They'll take you. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times when you come into religion, if you didn't grow up going to Sunday school and you don't understand it, you're lost. Like, I mean, not to, but she grew up Catholic, I grew up Lutheran. Yeah. Catholics don't quite study the Bible the way Lutherans do. No. So it's like. Catholics don't study the Bible. At all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's almost, you can instantly go into a group with Harry Potter people and go, we'll take you. We'll teach yeah. you. We'll, we'll get you where you are and get you ready to go where church can be so intimidating because yeah. I feel lost. So, so let, me, let me, if you will, let me kind of re- remap that and tell me, you totally call me, that's totally unfair, right? Um, so, can I see your name tag, sorry? RJ. RJ. Part of what RJ is saying is that, you know, I would say with the exception of don't get too deep into any of the common boards, uh, yeah. the, the Harry Potter world, for the most part, is a world that will embrace um, kind of wherever you are on your spectrum of Harry Potter, wherever you are in the LGBTQ world, wherever you are in terms of, you know, it, it's an embracing world. And the church is not that. Uh, and the church is a hard place to navigate if you don't already have all the insider language and all of the tools. And, and, you know, like if you grew up Catholic and you have no idea the way the scripture functions, you end up in a Protestant world that, like, sola scriptura is the, is the backbone and it's, like, how people engage. And if you grew up in that world and you try to enter the world of sign and symbol and sacrament and vestments and crazy outfits, like, if, if anything, I read that as a challenge for the church, right? Like, why the hell is an organization that views itself as, you know, as St. Benedict said, you're supposed to welcome people like Christ. Matthew 25, as much as you see these in the least of these, you see me. How did you welcome the stranger? It's a rather big theme. And and if the church ain't doing that, I mean, and, and frankly, like, even the best churches struggle with this because even the best churches, we form cliques 
We sit with our friends. We go get coffee with the people that we see every Sunday and we like to see them. And, and you know, even in growing churches, I think especially in growing churches, we're facing this at Summit Holy Communion. It gets to the point where it's like, is that person new? I don't know. I'm going to go get my coffee rather than welcome them so I don't embarrass myself. How do we live that value of welcoming one another, making space for one another wherever we are, the same way they're doing in the Harry Potter world? Why is church not like that? Well, can we make amusement parks? <laughs> Christian amusement parks? Yeah. And? Because if it's growing, somebody's doing the right thing, and I don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's that side too, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that there is a, you know, one of the things I think about Harry Potter, and it's, it's something, Hannah, thank you for naming, uh, at the beginning, is there's something about Harry Potter that said it's okay to be a misfit. And where, I mean, like the way that the characters interact with each other, um, at least the misfits in the book, welcome each other, somehow allowed this whole generation of misfits to grow up and find each other. As Hannah was talking about that, I was thinking about, like, we often think about the disciples around Jesus based on the stained glass windows from a lot of the churches as these, like, old bearded white dudes. (laughs) They were not that. Um, If you read John's Gospel, the Sons of Zebedee, you get this picture of these two guys Um, James and John, who have been basically flunked out of every rabbinical school in uh, the region of Galilee. Uh, They're back with their dad, having to do work with their dad. Uh, They don't really want to be there. Their dad definitely doesn't want them to be there. Um, But that's what they're going to be stuck with. And then here comes this rabbi who says, come be part of my clan. And there's a reason why Zebedee doesn't like jump up and say, you can't have my sons. It's because they're these misfits and suddenly they found another band of misfits. That's a Rob Bell midrash on that story, right? But there's something about the way that this group, this crazy tax collector and this rich woman who has done something really strange with her wealth and has decided to in, invest in Jesus, which is really Mary of Magdala's story. Um, and, um, and this like zealot and this, you know, like it's a wacky band of misfits that end up with Jesus. Um, why is the church not more like the Potterverse? Because they don't teach that. Well. Well, they say. Um, I, I mean, think the larger umbrella of the church yeah. thinks they are. Yeah. Sarah. Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, just to push back a little bit, I don't think that that's um, specific to Harry Potter, although that may be where most people encounter it, but I think in most children's literature, yeah. protagonists are kind of weirdo outsiders, or at least feel that way. Um, because that's so much of our childhood experience, that's what authors draw. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of childhood literature is that. What were you going to say, Hannah? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Kevin? I think your comments about deep in the comments section actually made me think about why church often messes this up, which is like when people think that the text is so sacred that sharing it hurts it, that you mm. can lose something of it, that sharing the story does not increase it, but actually you like... Giving up my gospel testimony invalidates it if other people don't share that. Mm. And so, like, 
well, I'm such like a big Lord of the Rings nerd that I struggle to talk about it with other people. And I can recognize that this is hurting me. This is not helping me. <laughs> but, um, and like me and my close friends like have to stop being so tribalistic about it and stop being so like I can't, your can't about yeah. it. Um, and I, I just think that I can relate a lot how I shame people in like nerd culture as also that would happen in church culture. Yeah, I mean, a lot of church culture, frankly, what's left of church culture is nerd culture, yeah. right? Um, it's also exactly pure blood, mud blood. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly that, that this idea that if I share this with you, it will be polluted. It's the thing. Yeah. Well, and it, it, there's a lot of history on that. And what I would say is the church and Christianity may appear monolithic, um, and, and a lot of the church tries real hard to appear monolithic. Um, and, uh, and it's really interesting uh, when you're in the midst of a church that's trying to really push back against that and try to be in a different space because you get dismissed as fast as anybody else. You know, godless Episcopalians is one of the, uh, you know, two words that go together uh, in some people's mind. So, um, so there's something, there's something about that, that and, and, and really, to be real, the churches that are trying to do that are absolutely in the minority. It's absolutely the minority report. I would argue that really since Constantine, though, since, you know, 1,500 years of Christian history, the only interesting thing that happens in the church is in the minority report. Yeah. It's, it's the underground stuff in the church that I find fascinating. Um, and it's the moments in history where that breaks through. I think of like Francis of Assisi, uh, where church history gets interesting again for a moment. Other things you want to map on Harry Potter and Faith before we go? Second toppers, your turn. You know who you are. <laughs> Introverts that have been holding it for a really good question. I love the uh, community aspect of it. Um, yeah. That, you know, it was fascinating to see uh, an entire generation brought into books and book learning and a shared story. Um, and then look at us 20 years later. Yeah. Here we're, it's bringing us together again for a chance to get together and have a shared experience. Yeah, there really is. I think, I think they're right. I think there is real magic in Harry Potter. Uh, and I think the opportunity to, to come and be nerds together and talk about it. But also there's an invitation to, I mean, to talk about Harry Potter. And it was interesting watching and listening in. As you get talking about Harry Potter, you're talking about Harry Potter. You're also talking about what matters to me. What are the things that I find to be true? What is it that I think is how the universe works? What do I think matters? Um, how do I work as part of Dumbledore's army? You know, um, and that's that's worth continuing to think through. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something which I don't normally do at Theology and Tap, which is I'm going to make you a promise that we will reopen this. We will find a way to do a nuanced and, and different set of conversation, but, but we will reopen the Harry Potterverse at Theology on Tap again. I don't know when yet, but, but keep your eye out. If you're not on our list, sir, uh, our email list, we send about one email a month. Uh, we got a Facebook page. You can like that, too. Um, I'm not sure we're still, I'm still confirming who our speaker for May will be. Um, I think I've got it nailed down, but I'm not going to announce it lest I don't. I will say that for June, I believe it's June 4th is the first Tuesday of June, uh, Sayer Johnson 
who is the executive director of the Missouri Trans Umbrella Group, will be our speaker for Pride Month. Uh, MTUG has been having an incredible year. Uh, they moved into their own space. They're doing some incredible work. Um, so we're going to have Sayer here with us to talk about what MTUG is doing and how people who are either right in the heart of faith community or floating around faith community's edge might find a way to collaborate with MTUG. Um, and they really, I, I was meeting with Sayer this morning, they're amazing. So save the date for the first Tuesday of June with Sayer Johnson. Uh, and if you want to know about next month, uh, like us on Facebook, get on our email list. Will you help me thank Hannah Shanks?